focus on writing his books and tracts and papers and just living a very peaceful and quiet life in Strasbourg as an author and a writer uh, promoting Reformation ideals. But on his way to Strasbourg, it just so happened that the French military was moving troops at the time that he basically hit a fork in the road and forced him to abandon his his journey to Strasbourg and detoured him over to the city of Geneva. He was only going to spend one night in Geneva. He's just going to spend the night there and then um, go back on to Strasbourg. But a guy by the name of William Farrell heard that young Calvin was in town. And he went and pled with John Calvin to stay here and help him with the Reformation that was going on there in Geneva and to be a leader there. And Calvin's like, nah, I'm going to live a quiet life in Strasbourg. Farrell was a persistent individual and basically the account is he implored Calvin with cursings. Not that he was swearing or using God's name in vain, but saying, God will judge you. (laughs) Curses of God come upon you if you do not take up the Reformation here. And Calvin was so stricken with fear, (laughs) he ended up staying in, in Geneva and pretty much you could say the rest is history. Became probably one of the greatest figures of, of a Reformation um, along with a few others. The thing I like about the story is, uh, is that it just so happened that military troops uh, were moved to the area that detoured John Calvin. It was no accident. It wasn't a miracle of God, but it was God getting Mr. Calvin to the place that God wanted Mr. Calvin to be at a particular time. John had one plan, God had another, and he marshaled, God marshaled the French army to get young John Calvin to encounter William Farrell. I love that story. I think it'll be relevant as we go on today. What I hope to do in our message today is to give you hope. And to comfort your souls because of so many things going on today. I want to comfort you. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. That God has not lost control of anything. And so just a quick review of where we've been. And then a fairly lengthy preview of where I hope to go. And lay some groundwork. But we've seen... Paul has made attempts to bring racial reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, and it's been largely unsuccessful. In fact, it has resulted in riots, it has resulted in Paul getting beaten, and it has resulted in Paul being imprisoned by Roman authorities. That's been the result of his attempts at bringing reconciliation between these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And they were Christian Jews and, you know, Gentiles. That's kind of where we've been. Here's where we want to go today. And let me just, like I said, a fairly lengthy preview. I want to first describe what we're going to see. Because what we're going to see in our text today, I think, is rather interesting. In fact, it would make a great movie. Because what we're going to see is conspiracies 
assassination attempt, covert plans by the highest ranking officials in society in the hopes of silencing an innocent man. So we've got this big, powerful governmental group uh, coming, marshalling its forces against this one solitary individual. We see protection of this innocent man from a very unlikely source. That's one of the things we're going to see. We're going to see men so committed to a cause that they are willing to risk their lives to kill this one man. We're going to see the uncovering of this plot and the secret council to neutralize it. We're going to see the movement of, a lar- of large military forces to assure the safety of this one individual. This would make a good movie. That's what we're going to see in our text today. Let me tell you what we're not going to see in the text today, because I think that's important. Here's what we're not going to see. We're not going to have any mention of God, no mention of Jesus, no mention of the Lord, no mention of the Holy Spirit, nothing about salvation, silence on Christian doctrine, zero instruction, no admonition, there's zero teaching, there is not a command, there's not even a miracle and nothing about practical Christian living. And yet, we all understand that all Scripture is inspired by God God-breathed and profitable for instruction and reproof. Including this one. This text with no mention of God, no miracle, no teaching, no doc, nothing. This book, as, you, as we read this text today, I couldn't help but be reminded of Esther. The book of Esther. I kind of thought of this as Luke's Esther. Because it reminds us of Esther because here is an entire biblical book with no mention of God. No doctrine. Nothing about salvation. Nothing about no teaching, no command. There's no miracle. And yet, it is, I think, one of the premier books in the Bible demonstrating God's, quote, silent outworking of his purposes in the world. In other words, Esther has no mention of God. The word God is not in any, any part of the book of Esther. And yet, as you read Esther, you can see God's fingerprints all over the place. The name God isn't there, but God is everywhere in the book of Esther. God is not mentioned in our text, but he is everywhere in our text. In fact, I would say few other books in the Bible display the providence of God as clearly as the book of Esther. And I'm going to go on with in our text today and we are going to see God, I believe, very clearly at work. So let me just make some, some definitions and some distinctions before I move along so that we're all on the same at the same place and we define some terms so that I don't use Christianese and assume everybody understands what I'm talking about. I want to talk a little bit about providence. And just a quick, very brief definition. I'm going to define it much more thoroughly as we get to the end of the message. But it is providence, when we talk about providence, we're talking about God's governance over the world to bring about his purpose. And that's a very, very brief and simple definition. God's governance over the world to bring about his purpose. 
Christians, we can take great comfort in God's providence because providence assures us that our world and our lives are not consigned to fate. Providence assures us that history is not random. Providence is a comfort to those in Christ. And it is relevant in this day. When you look at the news and you read on the internet and you can't go anywhere without talking about things are out of control and I just want you to take, want you to take comfort that while our government officials may have no clue as to do, how to do what they need to do, our God has not lost control of anything and you are his son and his daughter and he is moving things perfectly. So that's what we mean by providence. Let me just make a, a, a brief distinction between providence and miracles. Because there is a difference. And I'm going to define them this way. Miracles are supernatural. That is, God suspends natural law. In other words, God raises the dead. You and I know both know that the dead don't get raised. When you're dead, you're dead. And yet Jesus rose from the dead. Nobody really, I mean... Even, I hear silly people say, well, they were just primitive people who didn't know. No, they knew people died, and they knew what happened when people died, and they know people don't come back from the dead. They may not understand science the way you and I understand science, but they know that dead means dead. They weren't idiots. Partings of the Red Sea. Yeah, that's a miracle. The floating of an axe head. Right? All right, it's, it's, it's iron. It sinks to the bottom of a lake. But when it comes up to the top, that's a miracle. Suspending the law of physics or natural law. That's a simple definition. Providence is, is, is related but, but different. Providence is, uh, is natural. It's not supernatural. It is God arranging natural events to accomplish his purpose. Like he moves troops to move John Calvin to the place. No miracle took place. You didn't need to suspend any natural law to move, super, to move troops. Or perhaps this. Providence. Some ruler in the first century, or maybe a little bit before the first century, decides, I want to tax my people. And in order to tax them, I need them to all return to their homeland, the place where they were born, in order for me to get an accurate account of uh, my taxation policies. And so a man by the name of Joseph and his young betrothed uh, Mary get up and move to Bethlehem. Miracle, nothing supernatural there. Providence, absolutely. God bringing about his purposes to, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Absolutely. So with some of those as our foundation, let's look at our text this morning and um, let's move through it. Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. Listen to the word of the Lord. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down as though you were going to 
determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in the ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for the Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them um, with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. We begin with this utter and abject hatred towards the gospel. And our text begins with this, when it was day. It's a little time reference there that we should take note of. When it was day, this points back to a previous time. It points back to verse 11. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was, ju- when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves to kill Paul. When it was night, Jesus stood beside Paul and said, you're going to preach the gospel in Rome. When it was day, men bound themselves with an oath to kill Paul. There is this murderous scheme. More than 40 trained assassins. They call the Jewish, I believe the Sanhedrin, um, probably more the Sadducees. So some of the highest ranking officials, perhaps even the high priest, to be their co-conspirators in this murderous plot. So here's what you have. When it was night, Jesus promised Paul, you're going to Rome to preach the gospel. And when it was day, there is a plot of 40 plus men with high ranking government officials to thwart the plan of Christ. Christ says you're going to preach the gospel in Rome and these 40 men said we're going to kill Paul. I don't know about you, just thought 
if you were a betting person? Where would you place your bet? The word of Christ that you're going to Rome to preach the gospel or on this, these well-trained assassins and high government officials to thwart that plan. I can tell you right now, God's plan is going to get accomplished. Paul is going to end up in Rome. So here's what we have. 40-plus trained killers, high-level government officials versus the Apostle Paul. Well, versus the Apostle Paul and the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Paul, you're going to Rome is one word, the word of God, and the word of men is we're going to kill you. The promises of Christ versus the schemes of men. So this is what we have at the very beginning. At the very beginning, we have Christ promising Paul, you're going to Rome. And then as a little bit of an interlude, we have a whole bunch of people thinking they are going to thwart whatever plan Christ has for his servant. I need not tell you where, this, where that plan ends up. But it should strike us as, or we should at least think about this idea of why do they hate the gospel so much? Why do they hate the gospel so much that they're willing to kill a man who is proclaiming the gospel? Hatred toward the things of God can be expressed in numerous ways. And we see this in the Bible, and we certainly see it in the book of Acts, that people will attempt to silence the gospel. They will attempt to silence the gospel through intimidation, through fear, through shame, through threat. People attempt to silence the gospel through indifference. They just don't care about eternal things. The bottom line is this, folks. Mankind hates the gospel. It's not like mankind really loves Christ, just doesn't really, isn't really convinced. Man in his natural state hates the gospel. Jesus told us so. John chapter 3, 19 through 20. You remember in John 3, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and we get, of course, the wonderful John three sixteen. What a great statement. Maybe one of, the, uh, one of the, the more powerful verses in all the Bible, but Jesus doesn't end his speech there. Jesus goes on in 3, 19. This is what he says. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People hate the gospel. They love darkness because this is what happens. The gospel exposes our sin. The cross, through the cross, our sins are atoned for and forgiven, and you would think that would be good news. But to the natural man, the cross exposes that we are sinners and that we cannot fix ourselves. This is a blow to human pride. This is a blow to the fact that I'll try to fix everything myself. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm righteous enough. I can attain salvation. The cross demonstrates that our crime is against a holy God who is just, a God who judges sin. We prefer a God that doesn't judge sin. A God who just kind of lets us go our own way. Well, he'll judge other people's sin. He'll judge your sin. 
But he lets me get away with all the stuff I need to get away with. He's understanding with me, but your sin. <laughs> the cross demonstrates that there is a God who is just. And that he judges sins, but also that he is merciful and that he forgives those who trust in his provision. The gospel also highlights the resurrection and reveals that Christ's work at Calvary was sufficient and that he is Lord of all. And this is a blow to self-deification. That we are God's, that I'm the Lord, that I'm the master of my destiny, that I can figure that I, can, I have the power to work these things out. The cross and the, the resurrection show us our great need for a holy God and our great need for the work of Christ. Summary is that the gospel is offensive to the natural person. And this is why they're trying to kill Paul. And so, with this, we begin to see the providence of God. God has promised that that Paul is going to preach the gospel in Rome. And I love verse 16, and I'll just be very loose in my translation of it. It says, the more literal translation is, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And I'll just put it this way, and it just so happened. That the son of Paul's sister heard of these plans. It just so happened. Right place, right time. What a coincidence. Somehow, now we don't know a whole lot about Paul's family, but here we learn that Paul had a sister and he obviously has a nephew. And somehow God has arranged for Paul's nephew to be in a place where he's going to overhear of this murderous plot. God has just moved all of these parties to be at the right place at the right time so an ally of Paul is going to be there to hear of this murderous plot. No mention of God. No miracle. Just God working circumstances to bring about his purposes. This reminds me of in Esther of the king. Uh, One of my favorite parts of Esther when the king can't sleep that night and he's lying in bed, uh, unable to sleep, and so he calls for somebody. He says, you know, right, a good boring book will put you to sleep. And so the king calls for, let's bring out some of those records of uh, kingdom business. Like, probably nothing more boring than minutes of a business meeting, Right. And so he just so happens that the king can't sleep, and it just so happens that he says, bring me out, bring and just read some of the events that happened in the kingdom in the past. And it just so happens that the guy pulls out the scroll that talks about Mordecai's um, uncovering a plot to kill the king, and it just so happened. No mention of God. But make no mistake, God was everywhere present. And the king learned of Mordecai and ended up exalting him. And it just so happened that Paul's nephew happened to be in a place where he heard of this plot. And he informs the tribune who receives this young man, which in itself is pretty interesting, that this man who is over a thousand troops is willing to listen to this young man. And people all over, you hear commentators going, well, that's not realistic. That would never happen. This is God moving people to bring about his purpose. Miracle, no laws of nature were suspended, but God is everywhere active in this. 
And so the great and secret plans of men are thwarted by this young man, Paul's nephew. I want you to understand God is not aware of the secret intention of men's hearts. God even uses their schemes to accomplish his will. Which I find really fascinating. Proverbs, on the book of Proverbs, do I have that? 21. Proverbs 21.1, the, uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And then over in uh, Proverbs 21.30, we read this. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. No wisdom, no counsel, no understanding can avail against the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, We read this, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. God is not unaware of the secret schemes of men. He is everywhere present. And folks, I want to encourage you with this application. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Hebrews chapter 13, 6, quoting the psalmist, The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? So we see this hatred towards the gospel and the plot to thwart the plans of God, which of course are going to come to nothing. God sees the plan and he puts people in the right places at the right time and takes them uh, and he begins to uh, work in a way that is going to thwart this high-level assassination attempt. And in this third, this next section that we have called, I've just entitled this Night Flight, um, we see this contingent that the uh, Tribune puts together. See how big this was? Two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, and also provide mounts for Paul to ride. So. What is that? 470 people to guard this one man. And so we have just a quick review. We have Paul sitting in jail. He is informed by Jesus that he's going to preach the gospel in Rome. Now, I don't know, I don't want to read this in, so I'm just going to put myself, I'm thinking if God, if I were in that situation and Christ shows up and says, I'm going to have you preach the gospel in Rome. My thought is, cool, I'm probably going to get out of jail pretty soon, and I'm going to gather my friends and get on a ship and sail over to Rome, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel, big revival, all sorts of great things. Well, maybe, I don't know how Paul played it out in his mind, but I can tell you how God planned it. You are going to Rome. I am getting to you to Rome. God's plan is I am going to move the Roman army to personally escort you safely to your destination. This means, Paul, you're going to remain a prisoner, but you're getting to Rome. You are going to have safe passage. The Roman government is going to protect you so that you can appear at the highest levels of Roman government and proclaim the gospel. This is how I'm getting you there. Probably not the way you planned it, Paul, but you're getting there. 
He doesn't really tell Paul that he's going to be a prisoner for a couple of years, then get on a ship and then get in a storm and again, people want to kill him and then a shipwreck floating around at sea and then shipwrecked on an island then he gets bitten by a snake and, you know, God doesn't fill in those details. I'm getting you to Rome, though. You're going to Rome. 40 plus assassins, nothing. Storms at sea, not a big deal. Poisonous snakes, eh. You're going to proclaim the gospel in Rome. Even as a prisoner. And so then the Tribune sends this letter to Felix. And uh, really not part pertinent, but I, I like how the... Uh, um, of the Tribune, who's really a pretty good man so far. He's probably one of the, I don't know, the more reputable people in our, in, our, in our account. But he does say this. He says, I saw them beating up Paul, and when I, I rescued him because he was a Roman citizen. You didn't rescue him because you knew he was a Roman citizen. You just rescued him because you didn't want to riot. You didn't learn anything. The guy puffs himself up pretty good. He makes himself look really good in front of Felix. Felix is the governor. Um, and we're going to hear about Felix in a little bit, but he's the governor of the area. He's going to await for Paul's accusers to arrive before beginning Paul's trial, which is really interesting because pagan Rome shows more justice to Paul than religious Jerusalem. Anyways, Paul's going to Rome. Paul will go to Rome under the protection of the Roman government, and there is no threat or natural disaster or storm at sea or animal, or trained assassins, or governing officials that can thwart what God has planned. And God will move Roman armies to bring about his purposes. So, I just want to talk a little bit more about providence. I think it's an important uh, truth about the Bible, and we should know about, and it helps us to understand, how do we deal with... um, uncertainties in our life where we respond by looking at what does Scripture tell us? And one of the greatest places we can go is, what do we know about God? What does the Bible tell us about God? Can we be safe? Can we be be secure in who God is? So let's talk a little bit about providence again. And I want to bring up a slightly more um, involved definition. Um, And I think there it is. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all things to the purpose for which they were intended. This is God's continuous involvement with all created things um, so that they are preserved. So the first thing we want to learn about God's providence is that um, in God's providence, he preserves in fact, maybe, maybe one of the best texts that we have for this is that he upholds all things by his great power. Colossians 1.17. Um, he created all things and he upholds all things. He holds all things in the palm of his hand. Everything. It's an amazing thing. This earth, your life, is held in the palm of God's hand and he upholds it. Imagine if God let loose for even just a millisecond. Then things would truly be out of control. God upholds all things by his power. What a wonderful comfort we have. But God not only upholds, um, God, at 
put concurs, but maybe probably if I asked you to define concur, we would never. So God cooperates, but even that's a, a weak understanding. Here's what it means. God causes all things to happen by directing them to act as they do. God oversees natural occurrences. In other words, the Bible says that God causes the rain to fall and the grass to grow and the, the God causes lightning to flash across the sky and God causes rain, snow, hail. God causes these things. But we know good and well that God doesn't like specifically cause the grass to grow. That happens through photosynthesis and other and hydrological cycles and things like that. But God is the primary cause behind all of these things. These are secondary causes. God does cause the grass to grow. He has created systems that causes the grass to grow. We see this all throughout Scripture. Even random things like the casting of lots are in God's hands. And just because we know the natural cause of things, like we know why grass grows or we know why rain comes down or we understand hydrological cycles or those types of things, does not mean that God is not the primary cause. So God rules over his world. God upholds everything. He rules over everything. And then finally, we see that God governs. That is, he rules all things so as to secure the accomplishment of his purpose. In other words, God has a purpose in this world. And he directs, that is, he governs all things to bring about that purpose. And we see this in a variety of passages of text. Psalm 103, Daniel 4, um, 34, Matthew 10, 29, Acts 4, 16, 11, Romans 11, 36. This is God governing over the world that he has made. This Daniel passage. Oh. says this, speaking of the Most High, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted to nothing for he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand and nobody can say, what have you done? Our God governs over his creation and he brings them to his desired purposes. In other words, God plans the end and God plans the means. In your salvation, God planned the sa- how you would, that, that you would be saved. And he also planned the means. And, and we've talked about this before. But think about your testimony. Think about how you came to know Christ. And think about all the little intricate pieces that brought about your Salvation, the people who, the place you happen to be, the people who happen to be there, um, all the events. I think about my own um, time when I came uh, to know Christ and just all the intricate details to put me where I needed to be to hear the gospel is God moving things. God moved upon my heart to lead me to a place that I would have never, ever, in a million, jillion years, ever have gone to on my own. It was almost like he put a hook in my nose and drew me there. God plans the means, and God plans, uh, God plans the end, and God plans the means. 
means. I, I want to close this message with a passage in Revelation chapter 21. I want you to listen to this. If you've been napping, um, listen to this incredible passage of text. And I hope that this will encourage you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, also he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the end. That's the promise. That's the end. He said, Paul, you're going to Rome. And he says to you and me, you're going to the new Jerusalem. That's the end. God has a plan for his chosen people and he will move heaven and earth to bring about its fruition. God has planned the end. This is the end for his people. But God has also planned the means. He is going to get you there. I don't know how he's going to get us there. He may get us there in very tumultuous circumstances or maybe in a time of great peace. I don't know. But I know that no scheme of man will thwart what God has purposed for his people. And we see that in microcosm in the book of Acts, chapter 23. Paul's just going to Rome to preach the gospel. And Jesus is like, I'm getting you there, and I will move governments to get you there. Here is the fruition. I have eternal life with me planned for my chosen people, and I will get you there. Do you think any riot or uprising or anything that man can do can thwart the purposes of God? I'm here to tell you not at all. We can take comfort in the fact that our God rules and governs and sustains all things according to his purpose. The work of Christ is the means by which you can be assured of participating in the end that he has planned. He's planned the end. I just read you the end. In Revelation, he has planned the means also. The means is his son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again on the third day. And if you would repent and believe the gospel, you will be adopted into his family and he will make certain that he has a place prepared for you when you breathe your last breath. So repent and believe the gospel and look forward to watching how God moves heaven and earth to bring you into his home. Our Father, we are grateful this day that we are not in control of anything, that you are the Lord of all. You are King of kings, Lord of lords. You rule over all things. I thank you, Lord, that you have loved us. I thank you, Lord God, that you don't just plan the end and then 
hope that we get there. She planned the means to get us where we're going. So we're grateful this day. We thank you for the book of Acts where we see in this passage of text, Lord God, no mention of you, but you're everywhere present. And in our lives, even when we don't see you, we know that you are still present with us, directing, guiding, and leading. So have mercy upon us this day. Help us to trust you and to be encouraged and to live faithfully for the purpose for which you've called us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing. Well, let's go ahead and uh, bless one another. You see on the screen here, let's go ahead and say our benediction together. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.